my outline of what I'm going to, uh, what we're going to work through tonight. Okay. And there's some blanks in there for you to fill in, uh, that will hopefully keep you engaged. And if you miss a blank, um, you can, you can come to me later and I will tell you the word to fill it in for a nominal fee. And, uh, I'm just kidding. I'll give it to you for free. Um, but, but hopefully tonight will uh, will be enjoyable for all of us. So the, the uh, series title for what we're going to do on these Sunday nights when we gather one Sunday a month for, uh, for worship and for taking Lord's Supper is called Woven, Discover Christ in All of Scripture. And, and that is because, as I said this morning, what we believe about Scripture is that God has inspired and has authored all of Scripture. Not just some parts of it, not just... Loetta, how are you, dear? I just saw you. I'm so glad you're back. Sorry. <laughs> I hadn't seen Loetta in a minute. And uh, and uh, it's good to see you, sister. I'm glad you're here. Um, all of God's Word, as I was saying, is, is put together as one whole work, right? Second uh, Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed by God and is profitable for rebuke and correction and reproof and training in righteousness. And so all of God's Word is good for us. And we ought to desire to know and to understand and to have a working knowledge of all of God's scripture and all of God's word. But beyond that, all of God's word is ultimately telling really just one story. From Genesis to Revelation, God is telling one story, one story of redemption for us. And so, um, as I have called this series woven, I'm likening God's word to a, to a tapestry, right? Or maybe like a Persian rug you would lay on your floor or something you would hang on your wall to display. It, it is a grand work, a grand piece of, uh, of, of artistry and diligence that is put together one thread at a time, but to, but to put together this one whole large work, this one whole large picture. And so is scripture. Each book of the Bible, Genesis, to Revelation uh, plays a, a, a significant role in and of itself, but also it's related to the rest of Scripture in so many ways as well. It, it sits within the context of the whole grand narrative of redemption that God is uh, telling and is working with. And so my desire is to uh, each Sunday night when we gather uh, to go through one whole book of the Bible. Okay. And so we're doing this kind of from a bird's eye view from like 30,000 feet. And so we're going to, we're going to note the major peaks and valleys. Um, and, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time looking at bushes and things. Okay. So we're going to see the whole, the large movement of the whole piece of uh, the whole, the whole book that we're looking at and how it ties into the rest of scripture, how it centers in and finds its foundation in Christ. Uh, and that's what we're going to be doing. And so, um, I promise you tonight, I'm going to uh, not talk at all about somebody's favorite part of Genesis, okay? And uh, I'm just going to apologize ahead of time, but I'm also not talking about some of my favorite parts of Genesis, all right? So I'm an equal opportunity offender here tonight. But I'm going to hit the, the, the parts that I think are most important for helping us to understand uh, the point, the overall point of the book of Genesis uh, moving forward. So you have in front of you... Uh, your outline. And so let's begin to work through that. I want to start off by giving us some background information and uh, some context for understanding Revel, uh, Re- not Revelation, Genesis. And then, uh, and then we'll get into some of the specifics, okay? So first of all, the author, who wrote Genesis? Well, it's unstated in the book. There's no byline in Genesis. But traditionally, and even in the course of Scripture, we see that the author of Genesis is understood to be Moses, the man who led Israel out of Egypt. When did he write it? Well, it depends on who you talk to. There are some scholars who date the, uh, the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt uh, to about 1,400 years B.C. and others who date it around 1,200 years B.C., just depending on what records and other things that they're looking at. So depending on the date of the exodus, 
It was written sometime around 1400 or sometime around 1200 BC, most likely during that wilderness period when uh, Israel was wandering through the wilderness. I'm sure Moses probably had a lot of time on his hands during those 40 years and and decided to make the best of it. No, the Lord was inspiring him uh, to write these things for the people of Israel. Uh, there. You ought to see, or you should see there uh, in your notes, a summary of the book of Genesis. And if I could summarize the whole book of Genesis in a short paragraph, it would be this way. Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible and of the Pentateuch, Pentateuch meaning a five-part book, right? Pentateuch, uh, or the Torah, which means law of the Old Testament. These are the first five books of the Old Testament, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, Genesis is a book of beginnings, describes God's sovereign creation of the universe and of man in God's own image and for God's own glory. But Genesis also tells the story of man's tragic fall into sin through his disobedience to God's command and then of God's gracious promise of salvation from sin that will eventually come through man's offspring. From Genesis 3 to the end of the book, the promise of the seed, which is the offspring uh, that, that, uh, that we're talking about here, is repeatedly threatened by sin, yet perfectly preserved by God. The promise of the seed is finally and perfectly fulfilled in Jesus, as we will see. And salvation from sin is secured through each person's own faith in the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus. That's that's Genesis in a nutshell, okay, with its connection to Christ. And we're going to flesh that out a little bit. There are two major themes that we're going to hit on tonight in Genesis. And I think these are two major themes that that kind of control the flow of Genesis. And uh, you may have never thought about uh, Genesis this way, but uh, I hope that after reading this and, and, and exploring the book together tonight that you'll see that this holds up. First, God the creator and the promise keeper. In the book of Genesis, God, God demonstrates himself to be both creator and promise keeper. And then we have man, the sinner, needing a savior. These two things run parallel to one another throughout the course of the book of Genesis. Uh, well, where does Genesis fit in the scope of redemption history? If we could sum up redemption history or the gospel, if you will, in just four words, it would be this creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And so there on your notes, you'll have those four words with some arrows in between creation. We know is God created everything in the world, including human beings for a relationship of love and worship with him uh, to obey him, to follow his commands, to worship and to glorify him. But man in his disobedience sinned against God and fell. He uh, the fall is the that. Uh, a description of how we, by our own sin, have broken our relationship with God. But praise be to God, he didn't leave us to wallow in our sin, but put into uh, action a plan for redemption, for rescue, to save us from our sin. And at the end of time, God will consummate all things. He will make all things right. He will finally and perfectly judge all sin and reward all those who have placed saving faith in Jesus Christ. There will be a new heavens and a new earth that those who have been saved by faith in Christ will inhabit for all eternity, a real place a physical place where we will live for eternity in the presence of God. So where does Genesis fit in all of that? Well, here's what I want you to do. Take a pen or take a pencil or a crayon, if that's what you like to write with, and draw a box or a circle or something around the words creation and fall. And that arrow. So just kind of circle those all two together and then draw maybe an arrow looping over the top or some sort of dotted line or whatever, pointing to redemption. Okay, so the book of Genesis sits squarely within this understanding of redemption history. It tells us about creation and it tells us about the fall and it begins to tell us, it begins to point us toward how this this redemptive process is going to work out, how God will go about redeeming humanity. 
Now, uh, if you flip over to the inside of your uh, note sheet there, you'll see a little note about reading Genesis. How do we read and how do we understand Genesis rightly? Okay, this is really important because a lot of times we're used to reading books like Paul's letters and stuff, which are based on propositional statements like where Paul will say, you know, do this, 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 and don't do this. And, and that's easy for us, right? We can read those things and we know what to do or what not to do. But when we read Old Testament books um, like Genesis through Deuteronomy or even the Gospels, sometimes we have a tendency to want to read those as, as like a list of commands or things we need to do. But that's not how they were written and that's not what they're intended for. So the genre of Genesis, the kind of writing that Genesis is, is historical narrative. Moses is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, telling us a story uh, of true historical events, okay? As historical narrative, the intent of Genesis is not to give us a list of commands to follow or even of examples of certain kinds of people to follow. It's primarily intended to tell us the story of creation, sin, and the promise of redemption, and there are good characters in Genesis and there are bad characters in Genesis. And, and even the really good ones are not perfect or even close to it, okay? There are some individuals in Genesis who will appear heroic in one scene and abysmally sinful in the next, all right? Nobody, there are no cowboys and black hats and cowboys and white hats. Everyone in Genesis has a gray hat and most of them are going to disappoint you at one time or another. Uh, very often we are left wondering in the course of Genesis who the true hero is in this text. It's not Abraham. It's not Noah. It's not Jacob. It's not Isaac. It's not Adam. The hero of Genesis is God. So instead, as we're reading Genesis, don't think about our, what commands do I need to follow? What example do I need to follow? Instead, ask yourself these questions and try to answer them as you're reading historical narrative in the Bible. And that is like Genesis through Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Most of the Old Testament really is historical narrative. Ask yourself these questions. What is this text telling me about God and about his character? What kind of God is God? Number two, what is this text telling me about myself? What is this text telling me about my nature? More often than not, the answer is going to be that I am a sinner, <laughs> that my relationship with God is broken. And we see ourselves on nearly every page of Scripture in the lives of the many sinful men and women that God, even in his sovereignty, chooses to use for his purposes. Thirdly, ask yourself this question. What does this text have to say about the relationship of God to man? What is this text telling me about the gospel and God's desire to redeem us? Okay, now that we have all of those things out of the way and straightened out, let's look at the book of Genesis. I think the book of Genesis unfolds in four major movements surrounding four main characters, okay? So from Genesis 1 through 11, we have Adam and early mankind. From Genesis 11 through about 25, we have Abraham and the, the, the flow of, of Genesis is revolving around him. Third, from Genesis 25 to 37, we have Jacob or, or as he has his name changed to Israel. And then finally, in Genesis 34, or excuse me, 37 through 50, the, the narrative of Genesis follows uh, Joseph. So the fourth movement ends in Joseph. Let's begin with Adam and early mankind. Beginning in Genesis 1, 1, we know that God is the creator Right? Genesis 1.1 says this, and I encourage you to have your Bibles open. We'll be flipping through mostly in order. Okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, is what Genesis 1.1 says. And we all probably have that committed to memory. And these very first words of the Bible are ultimately about who God is and what he does. Okay? Let me read this with different, uh, different emphasis, on, uh, or emphasis on different words in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let me read it another way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Okay, in reading Genesis 1-1, we can know specifically that God is eternal. He exists outside of creation. And as the sole creator of the universe, he is sovereign over it. He is its rightful owner and its rightful ruler. Right In the beginning, God, not anybody else, God created the heavens and the earth. All of time, space, and matter exist outside of God's own existence um, and by his own creation. All that is made or has been made is by his hand and for his purposes. This includes the crown of creation, the crown of his creation, which is us, human beings. Genesis 1.27 says this, On the sixth day, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This verse tells us that God made us in his image, in his likeness, male and female, all of us bearing the image of God. No other part of creation has this honor and no other part of creation has this responsibility. What responsibility is that? Well, God is perfectly holy. He's perfectly good and just and merciful and loving and creative and moral and kind and sovereign and a host of other qualities in perfection that we can't even list here tonight. As image bearers of God, we have inherent worth and dignity as such. Because we bear his image, each man, woman, and child, born or yet unborn, bearing the image of God, has worth and dignity. But we also have, by our very nature, as image bearers, a responsibility. A responsibility to bear that image of God in truth and in clarity for God's glory and for our own good. Adam and Eve are created by God in his image to glorify him in the world. And we see that in the blessing that God gives them. How do you know, Stephen, that God created man and woman to glorify him in the world? Well, Genesis 1.28 tells me this, tells us this. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The blessing of man is thus to fill and subdue the earth stewarding it, managing it, caring for it with the kind of care and dominion that God himself exercises over all creation. Man and woman are created without sin, even as God is without sin, but they are given a command to keep as they live their lives in worship and obedience to God. The blessing here, right, is that they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, that God's image bearers would fill the whole earth, that the reflection of God's nature and character would encompass the globe. And that God would be glorified, be reflected, that his attributes would, would inhabit all of his creation through us, his live, his living, active image bearers. But God gives man and woman one command, and that command is not to eat of a particular tree in the garden, a command which they quickly disobey. And in doing so, they usher into creation sin and death, right? the fall which is related to us in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 22, is that story of how sin enters the earth. In eating that fruit, that forbidden fruit, the nature of man changes. He is in that moment still an image bearer of God, but that image is now tainted and marred by his disobedience. God, who is a just God, even though he said that in the day that man would eat of the fruit, he would surely die, he delays bringing death on the man and the woman. This is the first act of God's grace to humanity in not putting to death Adam and Eve immediately when they eat that fruit, when they disobey his command. But because God is just, he does not allow them to live without any consequence for their sin. And so he banishes them from the garden, right? Along with giving them a whole host of other curses that follow. 
Those curses we see in Genesis 3, verses 14 through 24. Uh, We won't read it all, but God there gives curses to the serpent uh, first, who deceived Eve and then who gave the fruit to her husband Adam to eat as well. He he places a, a curse on the woman, and then he places a curse on the man as well. These curses that are given to the serpent who deceive Eve, to Eve herself and to Adam, describe for us much of the evil and brokenness in the world around us even today. Okay? The reason we have to work hard to grow stuff in our gardens in the desert is because of the curse. The reason that husbands and wives, men and women, have conflict in their marriages and in relationships, the reason that we have uh, relation, uh, relational conflicts between one another, period, is a result of the curse. The reason that we get sick and get cancer and, and die is because of the curse. Okay, So if ever you're asking yourself why bad things happen in the world, you only have to look to Genesis 3 to see the reason. It's our sin that has broken creation. And even as Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden and from the presence of God, so also are we, each of us, separated from our creator by the same kind of sin. The good news is this, that even as God is just and good and right to punish sin, he also makes a promise to bring salvation from it. Okay, so already in Genesis 3.15, we're not even three chapters into the history of the world yet, okay? And, and humanity has already woefully messed it all up, uh, and God is already on the way to rescue us. Genesis 3.15, in, in the last bit of his curse to the serpent, God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. The Hebrew word for offspring there is also translated seed in other places, Okay. And we're going to, I'm going to use that word seed throughout the, our time tonight. So just keep the seed means offspring. All right. He shall bruise your head. Some translations say crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. This promise that God would raise up offspring, a seed that would crush the head of the serpent is what is often referred to by many scholars as the proto evangelion. You don't care about that. I would just call it the proto gospel. Okay. It's the first time that any hinting that any indication that redemption is going to happen appears in scripture and here at uh, only in the third chapter of scripture. Okay. It's the first indication from God himself that he has a plan to redeem mankind, even in the wake of this first act of treason against him. Even in this promise, however, is the promise that the victory over sin through the seed will not come without conflict. It won't come without threat from sin and from the efforts of the serpent. Right? The the seed will crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bruise his heel. And so from this point through the end of Genesis, we see time and again the seed, the promised offspring that will bring salvation, being threatened, right, by sin and by sinful people and even by the works of Satan through sinful people in Genesis. The seed is being threatened because the last thing that Satan wants is for God's purposes to be accomplished, right? He knows his head's about to be crushed and he's going to do anything he can to keep that from happening, all right? And we in our sinfulness tend to just act in ways that threaten God's promised seed or we see that in Genesis, But at the same time, and even in the most impossible of circumstances, we see God preserving his promise through the the course of, 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 I keep saying revelation, of Genesis. Okay, So in Genesis chapter 4, the cycle of sin, of of sin threatening the seed and God preserving his promise, the cycle begins. Okay, And from here, we're kind of on a a train that just isn't going to stop through the rest of Genesis here. So the cycle of sin begins with Cain and Abel. All right, there's a promise of seed and of offspring. And Adam and Eve have some offspring. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. And what happens? Cain kills Abel. 
All right. The, the seed is threatened. The promise is threatened through murder by murder. Adam and Eve have two sons and one of them is dead and the other is a murderer. Who can God use in this horrible situation? Right. Already with just the first, the second generation of human beings, the promise of redemption is under threat. But praise God, he is faithful and he keeps his promise of a seed through giving more offspring to Adam and Eve. Seth is born and Seth is one who will follow God, who will honor God, who does desire to obey him. Not perfectly. Seth is a sinner, too. Okay, but it's through him and through his line that God will bring this seed. Well, Seth has children and his children have children. And before you know it, we're in Genesis chapter six. And the world is a scary place. Now we have it at, uh, at Grandma's house. We have a, there is a a, uh, a toy uh, ark, uh, Noah's ark, and uh, it's you know made of wood and it's you know cut very and painted very nicely. And the girls like playing with it. And uh, Noah has a big smile on his face, and all of the animals fit perfectly inside the ark, and it doesn't smell like a zoo or anything. Um, and it's and it paints. It's just a really fun you know little toy for the girls to play with, right? Um, but the story of Noah in Genesis is anything but uh, little tykes, right? Kind of toys sort of thing, right? There aren't a lot of smiles in the story of Noah in in Genesis chapter six, and and there's not a lot of happiness. Why? Well, um, we're told here in Genesis chapter six, verse five. At this point, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. God's righteous judgment against sin has met a point to where it cannot already in human history cannot be abated any longer. It cannot be held back. God must unleash judgment for sin on the earth. It's that bad. Like y'all think it's bad today, right? Well, God isn't threatening to, to bring a flood of judgment and wipe out all of humanity, right, to us today. Verse 8, though. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. As sin is increasing in the world in, Gen- in the first part of Genesis 6, the seed is threatened, threatened by the coming judgment for sin. God is going to judge humanity for their sin, and he has decided to wipe out all of it. Well, what of his promise? Who will he carry out his promise of a seed through? Well, you get the answer in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The promise is kept through Noah. Genesis 6, verse 9 through chapter 9, verse 28. We have the the description of everything that that happens there, right? God sees Noah and he sees that he is a righteous man. He gives him commands to build an ark, uh, a boat that will carry he and his family safely through this time of judgment. So at a time when the sinfulness of man was in full effect, God sees one man among the whole population of earth who he knows uh, will obey his commands. And for that, Noah finds favor in God's eyes. Noah is not perfect. And that much is clear to us after the flood when Noah gets drunk and falls asleep naked in his tent and reveals his nakedness or whatever to his sons. He's just laying there naked and his boys walk in and see that shameful thing. Right. Noah is not perfect. But his heart is a heart that is tuned to obeying the voice of God. So when God calls Noah to build the ark, Noah doesn't delay. He builds. Right. He obeys God's word. And because of that, out of this literal flood of God's wrath against sin, Noah and his family escape judgment. 
carried securely in God's instrument of salvation, ensuring that the promise of, uh, of a seed that would bring salvation has not been abandoned, and that salvation, while very real for Noah and his family, was, gonna co- was going to come in an altogether more real way for the rest of the world after him. The next event in the course of Genesis where the seed is threatened is in Genesis chapter 11, in this place called Babel. There we, we see after Noah, has, uh, Noah and his children have had more children and the earth has been repopulated after the flood, uh, people began from all over the parts of the earth to move to this place called Babel and to build a city for themselves and a tower that is there. Look at Genesis 11. Uh, verse uh, 2. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, the cute little thing that it was, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing will be, nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so that's what God does there. In Genesis chapter 11, the seed is threatened by man's arrogance. God has given man a charge and a blessing to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. Right, That his glory might encompass the earth through his image bearers. But in Genesis chapter 11, all of the people of the earth are not being dispersed throughout the earth. They're not filling the earth. They're filling one city. They're all coming together in one place to build a tower. For who? Themselves. For their own name. So we can make a name for ourselves. They've forgotten that they were created in the image of God to be bearers of his image in the world and to glorify God, to radiate his characteristics, his good nature, his glory in the world. And instead, they've, they've sought to steal it for themselves. And so out of their arrogance, they threaten this seed, right? The seed that would come and would save all of mankind. Well, praise God, he's faithful to his promises yet again. This time, God keeps his promise. He preserves his promise through scattering the people forcing them to to do what he has commanded mankind to do, to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, but not to congregate into one place. All right, that's act one. That's movement one. Adam through early mankind, okay? Then in Genesis chapter 11, 27 through about chapter 25, we have movement two. Here at this point, we have the the call of Abram, and he will later have his name changed to Abraham. And once we hit Genesis 11, the the narrative of Genesis slows down rapidly. And so rather than looking at broad swaths of human generations and people, the focus of Genesis now is solely upon one man and his descendants, his offspring. Okay, Abram, as he was first known, was a man from a place called Ur, U-R. And even in his day, it was a relatively insignificant place. Abram was not a God-fearer or a God-worshipper. It doesn't seem... But when God calls Abram in Genesis chapter 12, his response is full and unfettered faith in the one who has called him. Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 3 say this. Now the Lord said to Abram, "Go from." that's how Abram is introduced to us, by the way, okay? God just speaks to him. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here, the promise of seed of one who will redeem mankind is beginning to take shape and get more specific. Now we know through whom specifically this uh, 
seed is going to come, right? It's going to be through Abram. So it's there in Genesis 12 and also in Genesis 15 where the same promise is reiterated. But in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant between himself and Abram. In Genesis 15, God makes this covenant with him, swearing by his own name to do that which, to do that which he has promised. So God says, I swear by myself, I will, I will fulfill my promise to give you offspring and a land and all of this. <clears throat> the, promise, uh, the promise is here. Of, of offspring and of land are significant to Abraham because it's precisely his family and his homeland that he left to follow God, right? God said, leave your homeland, leave your family, go to the place where I'll show you. And God says, when you get to the place that I'll show you, I'll give you a new land and I'll give you more family than you can count. This reminds me of, of what Jesus says to his disciples when he's reminding them to consider the cost of discipleship in uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 29 through 30, when Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, which will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Right? If you are worried about following Christ because you think everybody's going to hate you and you're going to have to leave your family or your family's going to cast you out or, or, or disown you or whatever the case may be, you're afraid you might lose your job because you're a believer, um, don't be so worried and so focused about the things that this life has to offer. Trust in God's promise in the words of Christ that you will receive many, many times more in this life. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to have a whole bunch of money and all the things that we ever want, Right? But if you leave your family to follow Christ, you're not leaving your family to follow Christ all by yourself. There's a lot of other people that are following Christ too. You might have to leave your family to follow Christ, but in leaving your family to follow him, you're gaining a whole new family. Okay? You might have to leave your home or leave your job or leave some sense of security to follow Jesus. But in following Jesus, you receive a sense of security that far surpasses anything you can experience in this world. You receive eternal life. How much more secure does it get than that? Not much more. And so in a way that sets the example for believers in Jesus, Abraham sets an example for the kind of faith that leads to eternal life, faith in the promises of God. We see in Abraham's own life that faith in the promise secures righteousness. Faith in the promise secures righteousness. Genesis 15, verse 6. This after God has re reiterated his promise to Abram. It says this, And Abraham believed the Lord. And he, that is God, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. How is it that Abraham is made righteous with God, made right with God? By faith. He trusts God and God counts it to him as righteousness. Well, very quickly, we see that the seed, the promise that God has given even to Abraham, starting with Adam and Eve and now moving on to Abraham, the seed is threatened by barrenness. Abraham's married to a woman who cannot conceive. Okay? And not by any fault of her own. This is just and not because of any sin in her own life. It doesn't seem it's just part of living in a broken, fallen world. Let, hear me say today, if you or your family or friends that you know have been plagued by, by barrenness or the inability to conceive and to have children, and that is your heart's desire to have children and your heart is just breaking about that, let me at least give you some comfort in knowing that it's not your fault that you can't conceive. Okay, a lot of times it's just because we live in a world where stuff doesn't work the way it's supposed to. We live in a world where people get cancer. We live in a world where hurricanes and tornadoes happen. We live in a world where, where women can't get pregnant no matter how badly they might want to. And that's not your fault. It's just part of living in a world that is broken by sin. And, and my prayer is that you will, in trusting God, let him heal your heart, even if he doesn't heal your body. But to see his work and his, pro his purposes 
in your life, even in the midst of that. Okay, but the seed is threatened in Abraham's life, right? Because his wife can't get pregnant. And they're getting really old, okay? Older than anybody in this room, I promise. And they've not yet had children, okay? Yeah, think about that for a minute. Okay, but God has promised that they will. Now, Abraham and Sarah try to take matters into their own hand. There's a little thing that happens with Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, and we all know how that ends, right? Not well, okay? But God says, no, it's not going to be through Hagar. It's not going to be through Ishmael. It's going to be through your, your rightful wife, Sarah, that I'm going to bring this seed, okay? And so we see that God does eventually keep his promise of seed uh, in Isaac in Genesis chapter 21. Isaac, who was born miraculously when there was no hope for a child, uh, is now born. And Abraham has a rightful seed. He has a rightful heir, rightful descendant. His birth is told to us in Genesis 21. He's nearly sacrificed in Genesis 22 at God's command. But then, of course, we see God providing uh, a proper sacrifice at the right time. Not because God was trying to trick Abraham into sacrificing his son. But God was using this as a moment to, to test and to affirm and confirm in Abraham's own life his faith to God. Right? That faith that made him righteous. God spares Isaac. Uh, And allows him to grow into a man and to be married. And Isaac, after he is married, has two sons, twins, in fact. First one is Esau, good-looking red-headed man. And Jacob, the dirty rat, who who comes out of the womb holding on to his brother's heel, right? A, A picture of what the rest of their lives will look like. Jacob trying to ride the coattails, trying to gain some advantage from his brother. And so it is with the birth of Jacob that we begin to move into the third movement of Genesis. Okay? And, and following Jacob, or, or who his name will be changed to Israel, following his storyline. First, may, maybe the most notable event in the life of Jacob is when he steals the blessing from his father Isaac. Now, it was common when a man in those days had a son or had many sons uh, that he would, before he died, give them their inheritance. And the firstborn son would usually get a double portion. So uh, Esau and, uh, and Jacob were Isaac's uh, sons. And so when he would give them the blessing, it was intended that Esau would get two-thirds of Isaac's uh, uh, wealth or fortune, his estate, and that Jacob would get one third. Okay, so you could see that the blessing, that that inheritance, was a coveted thing by anybody who was not the firstborn son. Okay, and so we have this incident where uh, Jacob goes about deceiving his father uh, at the uh, encouragement of his mother. Um, gosh, what a terrible marriage. Anyway. Uh, Jacob's mother encourages him to deceive his father to steal the blessing from Esau. So while Esau is out hunting, uh, uh, you know, elk or whatever to, to make delicious stew for his father so that he can receive the blessing, Jacob is in there dressed up in goat skin and stuff to feel like his, you know, hairy, good-looking brother, um, feeding his father this food that Rebecca, uh, yeah, that Rebecca had um, made for uh, for Isaac to eat. And in that process of being deceived, Isaac gives the blessing to Jacob, not Esau. Jacob steals that blessing. And immediately the seed, this promised seed, is threatened by Jacob's theft. How so? Well, look at Genesis chapter 27, verse 41. This is how Esau rep- uh, responds to being deceived. Now, Esau hated Jacob. Because of the blessing which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. And then I will kill my brother Jacob. 
Esau is mad enough to kill his brother. And Jacob knows it, and so he runs. He runs for his life. He is fleeing the rest, just about the rest of his adult life from his brother Esau. Now, later in Genesis chapter 33, verses 1 through 20, Jacob and Esau meet up again as they with their clans are traveling, you know, through the land. They meet up again and Jacob sends people ahead to try to woo his brother, to try to bribe him, to keep him from killing him because he thinks Esau's still on the warpath. Well, praise God by his graciousness, he's worked in Esau's life and brought him to a place where he's been able to forgive his brother. And we see reconciliation, restoration of that relationship between Jacob, the thief, and Esau, the one who was stolen from So the seed is threatened by Jacob's theft, but it's also preserved and kept with Jacob, through Jacob. In Genesis chapter 28, uh, Jacob, as he is wandering around, has this vision in the night of a ladder descending from heaven and angels going up and down. And there in verse uh, 13 of Genesis 28, we read this. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Sound familiar? Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave until you, uh, will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God affirming and confirming, preserving his promise of seed through the son who stole the blessing. Jacob. Jacob later in in Genesis chapter 32 has another uh, eventful night in which the Lord appears to him. We're not exactly sure what that looked like, um, but we're told there in Genesis 32 that Jacob wrestles with a man through the night and and it's told to us that that man is the Lord. And many scholars believe this is sort of um, an appearance of of Christ, an appearance of God the Son in a pre-incarnate form. So before the Son of God was born as the man Jesus, uh, some scholars believe he is the one who is here wrestling with Jacob in the night. And they wrestle all night long until the break of day uh, when, when um, God says, let me go. And Jacob says, I will not go until you bless me. And so uh, God pulls this really cool uh, Holly Holm MMA move and he uh, pulls... Uh, he, he sets Jacob's uh, hip out of socket, right? That would make me let go of whatever's happening too. But all night long, and then he blesses Jacob and he changes his name from Jacob to Israel. Israel, which, mean, which means he who has striven with God or God who strives, depending on how you understand it. But here's the picture. All night long, Jacob is wrestling with God, not to gain an advantage, not to steal something from him, not to overcome him, but to be blessed by him. I will not go until you bless me, says Jacob to God. And what does God do? God responds with blessing. Now, there's something in there for us uh, today, church. There's something in there for us encouraging us to strive with God, not to try to steal a blessing, not to try to get something from God that's not rightfully yours, but to strive with him, to fight with him, to wrestle with him through the difficult and the dark times in life so that at the end of it, he would bless us in his purposes and, and through his will in our life. It is good to strive with God when you are seeking his blessing. We see in Genesis chapter 35, verses 9 through 15, this this very serious commitment by Jacob to follow God fully. There in that place, a place called Bethel, the place uh, which means house of God, where, where Jacob had seen that ladder coming down in the night. There he makes a, a commitment to God. He puts away all of the idols that he and, and all of those in his house have, and, and they make this commitment to follow God fully. And God says to him, I am God Almighty. This is Genesis 35, 11 through 12. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. 
A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give uh, the land uh, to your offspring after you. The seed is alive and well in Jacob. The promise has been preserved even in the midst of impossible circumstances and Jacob's life being threatened. God is still faithful to his promise. Jacob, having his name changed to Israel, now becomes the figurehead of a nation. He marries not one, not two, not three, but four women, Mm. Uh, which I would not recommend, and I don't think God does either. Uh, We see the kind of conflict and the tension that results of of men that have multiple wives in Scripture, and I think what we learn from that is that that it is confirmed in us that God has not created marriage to work that way, that he desires it to be one man and one woman, united, committed to one another, and covenant love for a lifetime. But uh, Jacob, who is Israel, has four wives and has 12 sons, the 11th of which is named Joseph. Joseph, the favorite of his father, would be uh, given special treatment in the house. And among his brothers, he is favored the most and given this uh, technicolor dream coat, right? This coat of many colors. And for it, his brothers hate him. They hate his guts, right? And so not only, though, is, is Joseph favored by their father, even though he's not the oldest, even though he's not the, you know, maybe the best looking or whatever it is, but because... He is his father's favorite. The brothers hate him. But beyond that, Joseph has these visions. And in these visions, in these dreams, he sees his brothers effectively bowing down to him, paying him homage, giving him honor, right? Seeking to be blessed by him, the 11th of 12. And Joseph, because he's such a smart guy, goes and tells his brothers about these dreams. Hey, guys, I know you hate my guts. Here's what God's going to do, right? You're all going to bow down to me. And so his brothers uh, react the way that we would expect sinful men, sinful brothers to. They beat him up. They take his coat. They throw him in a pit. They sell him to slave traders who eventually sell this boy into slavery in Egypt. Okay? They go to their father. They tell their father that Joseph has been uh, uh, killed by a, by a wild animal. And, uh, and Israel, Jacob, he believes it. And he's just broken. He's absolutely broken. Um, and, and from that point on, the narrative of Genesis follows Joseph. And so we see Joseph uh, as, a, as a slave, as a servant in Potiphar's house and, and Potiphar's wife who's making uh, these advances against uh, or toward Joseph, trying to get him in bed with her. And he says no, and he flees, and, and the uh, crime scene is staged, and he's arrested and thrown into prison where he spends several years. And there it is. Uh, while he's in prison, that God begins to give dreams and visions to Pharaoh. And none of Pharaoh's wise men can answer what's going on. And so uh, eventually it is found out that Joseph has this ability to interpret dreams. And so they bring him up out of the dungeon uh, to the house of Pharaoh, and he begins interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. And as a result of that, he gains Pharaoh's trust and rises all the way to second in power over Egypt. He's like the vice president of, of Egypt. Okay? He is, he's doing, overseeing, administrating all of Egypt. Okay? So he goes from favored son of, his, uh, of, a, of a man who lived in relative obscurity in the Canaanite wilderness to slave to second in command of Egypt. Right? It's an incredible story, incredible uh, series of events that happen. But while he's there in the house of Pharaoh... Pharaoh has another set of dreams and Joseph interprets these dreams for him. And he tells him there's going, that, that as a result of these dreams, what God is saying to Pharaoh is that there's going, there are going to be seven years of, of plenty and abundance in Egypt. There's going to be a lot of rain and crops are going to be really fruitful. It's going to be a great seven years. But then right after that seven years, there's going to be seven years of hard famine. 
as bountiful as the first seven years were, so will the seven, second seven years be desolate. Okay? And so in God's wisdom and, and, and utilizing God's wisdom, Joseph begins this plan of, of storing up grain and other things through those seven really bountiful years so that they'll have some left over for the seven lean years. Well, when the seven lean years hit, the famine doesn't just hit Egypt. It hits the whole area. It hits Canaan as well. And who lives in Canaan? Jacob, Israel, and his other 11 sons. And so when this famine strikes, immediately the seed is threatened. Now we know from reading the rest of Genesis and the rest of Scripture that the seed doesn't come through Joseph. So why is so much attention being paid to, to, to Joseph? In fact, the seed will come through Judah, right? Jesus is the lion of Judah, right? He's the, the, the king that will come out of Judah's line. Judah wasn't even the firstborn. He was the fourthborn. And the three brothers before him were rotten dudes as well. And they had disqualified themselves from being bearers of the seed. So it is Judah that gets the promise of the seed. But Judah's not the one in Egypt. He's the one who... Judah is threatened by the famine in Canaan. But Joseph is in Egypt. And Israel and his sons happen to know that there's food in Egypt. So Israel sends his sons to Egypt to get food. And they go and they make an appearance in front of Joseph. They don't know who he is because they haven't seen him in umpteen years. Right? Father thinks that he's been dead this whole time. They're not expecting to see him. But Joseph recognizes his brothers, doesn't he? And there, through a series of events, Joseph and his brothers eventually are, are reconciled to one another. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, who he is, and they are, rightfully so, terrified of what he will do. He's second in command of Egypt. He can have anybody killed that he wants killed. He can exact his vengeance at this point if he wants to, but instead he chooses not to. Instead, he invites them, all of his 11 brothers and his father, to move to Egypt to settle in the land of Goshen, which, by the way, was the best place in all of Egypt to live, really fertile place. It's the kind of place you would want to be if you lived in Egypt in those days. And so he expresses grace and forgiveness to his brothers there. And in so doing, we see the promise of a seed which would come through Judah, not through Joseph, but would come through Judah, is preserved by the power of God's purposes. After their father Israel dies, the brothers go to Joseph and they're like, hey man, you, you still don't want to kill us, right? And Joseph said to them, do not fear. This is Genesis 50 verses 19 and 20. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And who is one of those who will be kept alive? Judah and his descendants through whom will come Jesus, the seed, the promised seed. So here we are at the end of Genesis now, right? And the seed has been threatened time and time again by sin and by sinful men and by the works of Satan through sinful men. And even in the most impossible of circumstances, God is preserving his promise in Genesis. That's Genesis right there in a nutshell. Congratulations, you did it. Now you know everything about Genesis. I'm just kidding, you don't. Um, but you have a really good place to start when you read the rest of Genesis. So, so now we have to answer this question, what about Christ? We said that all of Scripture is woven together to show how Christ is at the center of it. Well, where do we see Christ in Genesis? First, Jesus is the promised seed. If you can get there quick enough, go to Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 28. There in Luke 23, Luke gives his genealogy of Jesus, right? Tracing his, his lineage back as far as, um, as, far as uh, he can go. I'm in Luke 23, not Luke 3. Luke 3, 
Verse 23 says this, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, uh, the son of all of these other people who you will want to name your sons. And then verse 36, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, well, which, by the way, uh, Nikki, if we ever have a son, we're naming him Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel. That's his middle name. The son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus is the promised seed. Promised to Adam and to Eve that they would have an offspring that would crush the head of the serpent. And in so doing, defeat sin and death death forever. Luke says, Jesus is that seed. Secondly, Jesus is the second Adam. That's a strange way to think about it. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 say this therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all men sinned for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given but sin is not counted where there is no law yet death reigned from adam to moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of adam uh, who was a type of the one who was to come But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the uh, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that comes. uh, Excuse me. Gift of grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, speaking of Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the second Adam, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Adam, the first man, the one through whom... We have all received our sinful nature and reaped the consequences of that sin, which is death. Adam brought sin and death into human existence. Adam cannot bring salvation because he was the first traitor. No, another man has to do that for us. One who is untainted, unstained by sin. One who is conceived and is born not from the efforts of man, but by the Spirit of God. That man is Jesus Christ. And as Adam was the man who brought sin into the world by his disobedience, Jesus is the one who brings salvation to the world by his divine obedience and submission to the Father through his sinless life and through his death on the cross and resurrection in your place and in mine. Jesus is the second Adam. Third, by faith in Christ, we are Abraham's descendants. Romans 4 verse 11 says this, He received the sign of circumcision, that is Abraham, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Abraham's righteousness that comes by faith in the promise of God is not unique. In it, Abraham becomes an example for us to have faith. We've talked about this. But in that instance, God proves that he will always count men righteous by their faith in the promise. So for Abraham, his faith was in a promise yet to be fulfilled. Okay? But he trusted all the same. 
For us, righteousness comes by faith in the same promise to Abraham, that promised offspring that Abraham looked forward to. Only for us, we've seen the promised seed. We know who the promised seed is, and his name is Jesus. God has and will continue to make men and women right with him through their faith in the promised seed, the promised Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, and by no other way. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus, you aren't trusting Jesus for salvation, let today be the day of salvation for you. Finally, those in Christ will inherit the new Jerusalem, the land that Abraham was looking forward to. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10 says this to us. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is not men, but whose designer and builder is God. And so here in Hebrews, we find that as Abraham took possession of the land that he was promised by God, he he really did go to a land and he really did take possession of that. He did so looking forward to a city whose foundation and design and building are fulfilled by God himself. This, the writer of Hebrews demonstrates for us, is more than an earthly city. For what city in all of human history can be said to have these kinds of qualities? No, whether or not he saw it clearly... Abraham was looking forward to eternity and life in the new heavens and the new earth, the writer of Hebrews says. And we who, like Abraham, trust in the promise and place faith in Jesus for salvation, we too will walk those streets in the new creation with Father Abraham and his many sons who have been reckoned to him by their faith in Christ. Abraham only had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and Ishmael was an illegitimate one. Abraham did not have descendants that would number the stars in his lifetime. But by faith in Christ, Abraham's descendants are myriad. They are innumerable. They are uncountable. They are more than the stars stars on the sky or or the grains of sand uh, on the seashore. We are, by faith, Abraham's descendants. It's not Abraham that saves us. It's faith in the same thing that Abraham had faith in that saves us. We are descendants in faith, by faith, In Christ. And so tonight we we gather not just to look at God's word, to understand God's word, to see how, how this first book of Genesis works into the rest of Scripture, but we do so with an eye toward Jesus, our Savior, the one who died in our place and was raised again from the dead for our salvation. And as a church body tonight, we gather to take the Lord's Supper, a memorial meal 